Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here on this beautiful uh, Sunday morning. It's also wonderful to see our our numbers increase in the summer. Typically, uh, numbers go down in the summer, but we've been blessed and fortunate to see numbers rise. And so, so glad to have you here. You could be anywhere else on this beautiful Sunday morning, but you're here with us, and I'm grateful for that. Special welcome to anybody who's visiting us for the very first time. It's so great to have you here with us, and special welcome also to anybody who's listening to us through our website, through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, Mandy was mentioning as she took the offering that we're in the middle of, I shouldn't say the middle, we're in the midst of a building campaign or giving campaign. And for those of you who are new around here, you might not know that we have the fantastic opportunity to purchase this building and not just purchase it, but to uh, to renovate it so that we can sort of move out of a uh, gym with all these different colors and all these different things going on. We can have some common space and just begin to make this place our own as we set down roots in this community. We began this giving campaign uh, on Easter Sunday, which is April 1st, and already we have raised $140,000, a little over $140,000. Yeah. And so we don't have some big sugar daddy somewhere like giving us money like you guys have done that. You've tightened your belts and you've done that. And I've expressed to you that our closing date is September 4th, uh, God willing. And uh, we are pressing to raise $200,000 for that close so that we can go into uh, to the bank, the closing table, with enough to make the first phase of our dreams come true. We had a bit of a snag this week as we had to switch lenders, sort of, which is kind of the thing you want don't want to do kind of in the middle of this process, but we've had to do that. So we continue to solicit your prayers so that things can continue to roll smoothly. But what you can do is continue to pray, continue to serve here, continue to show up, and continue to give. Many of you have made pledges, and we're thankful that you'll continue to pay on those pledges. But please continue to do that, and just pray for God's favor and God's blessing as we press toward our immediate goal uh, of $200,000. So thank you so much for your support on that. Well, let me, let me begin the message this morning uh, in 1999, a guy by the name of Dan Gookie, an interesting name, uh, wrote a book called DOS, D-O-S, for dummies. And some of you, those of you into computers, particularly if you were getting into uh, computers in the early 90s, you might have even purchased this book. Uh, but the goal of this book uh, was to just give a layman's guide to those trying to figure out the complicated new world of personal computing, particularly the disk operating system. And this book sold many, many copies, and what followed were other books, sort of like Windows uh, for Dummies, which was the sort of best-selling book in this series. It sold today over 15 million copies, and what followed that were about 2,500 different titles under this sort of dummy books, right? And worldwide, they've sold some 200 million books to date, everything from computers to chess. I even looked on my bookshelf, and I have... Fishing for Dummies. I haven't read it yet. I think my kids are looking at it. But, you know, in this series, anything you want to learn, you know, there's, there's a book for it. Chess for Dummies. I don't snorkeling for Dummies. Batman for Dummies. You name it, right? And these books were not written in order to insult us, right? Because you call somebody dummy where I'm from. It's like those are fighting words. We have to step outside for it, right? And so this series wasn't designed to insult you, but rather to help you, to give you some instruction, a guide, some expert knowledge, a window into an area of expertise that you were either interested in, but you lacked significant knowledge. You didn't quite know what was going on, right? 
And so I think when it comes to the more important things of life, not that chess isn't important and not that fishing isn't important, uh, but when it comes to the more important things of life, somebody should write a book uh, for just life. And so years ago, a long time ago, God wrote a book, <laughs> Life for Dummies. Uh, it's more commonly known as the Bible, uh, but just practical wisdom, timeless, tested instruction on the more important things of life. How do we love well, right? How do we uh, relate to God well? How do we steward our money well? How do we steward our sexuality well? More importantly, how do we relate well to the people that are in our life? The Bible is full of information on that because it's great to know how to run computers. It's great to know how to operate Windows and Macintosh computers and play the game of chess. It is fantastic, but if we don't know how to do life well, particularly if we don't know how to do relationships well, the quality of our life and the collective quality of the world at large will significantly suffer if we don't have some wisdom from heaven as to how to work this out. And for that reason, at each and every summer, we pause to uh, do a series of teachings on relationships. In this particular series that I started just a few weeks ago, we've been calling, Can We All Just Get Along? Can we all just get along? It's a call to peace, right? It's a call to, to be civil again, to get along with one another. And in the Christian sense, it's not just sort of, hey, live and let live. It's not just this sort of passive, hey, you don't upset me, I don't upset you. But it is a deep understanding of how to truly live in harmony with friends, family, and the stranger alike. Can we all just get along because it's important that we talk about our relationships because our relationships matter. I've said over and over that for better or worse, you and I will be shaped by the quality of our relationships. And I've also been saying that the goal of this series is to not give you helpful instructions as to how to fix someone else, but this is faithful, helpful, timeless instruction as to how you can, in a more excellent way, honor God with your relationships. It is a means by which we impart relational wisdom or relational skill so that we might live this life and steward well our relationships. I started this series a couple weeks ago by talking about the importance of honor. The very beginning of loving well, relating well to one another is honor. If we don't start with honor, if we don't start with seeing people as made in the image of God of much worth and value, then everything breaks down. Because honor demands that I bestow due honor, respect, regard. I show deference to you. And that's the sort of beginning of relating well to one another. I continue the series by talking about the importance of forgiveness, just how to forgive. Uh, David Jacob did a fantastic job of talking about this hidden aspect of relationships, loneliness, and how we can steward that well and see what God wants us to see in that. And I want to continue this series today by talking about two of the most important words in the English language, particularly when they're put together. And those two words are, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've said it often, and that is this, if you can't learn to say thank you, and if you can't learn to say I'm sorry, you're going to have a hard time in life. When we consider our purpose here on earth, to love God, to love people, the bulk of what we're on this earth to do is relational, relationship with God. If we can't learn to say thank you, to, to, to regularly have an instinct toward gratitude, 
And if we can't regularly position ourselves to have an instinct toward apology and making right the things that we've made wrong, the the quality of our relationships will dramatically suffer and uh, the quality of our life will be diminished in a significant way. Why? Because we are hardwired to be appreciated. Isn't that right? We are hardwired to be appreciated. That our acts of generosity, our acts of kindness, our acts uh, toward other people, we are hardwired to hear them say thank you. And not just say thank you, but to show gratitude. Is that right? We are also made in the image and likeness of God. We are hardwired, right, to receive justice. That means that when some somehow we've become been wrong and somebody does us wrong somebody takes something from us or somebody makes a relational debit we are hardwired to have that made right through the vehicle of contrition and apology and if those things get broken now if you're the type of person who haven't learned to say thank you if you're the type of person who hasn't have an instinct toward apologizing your life's going to be hard and the people who are in relationship with you their life's going to be hard minimally it's going to be harder than it has to be you're not going to experience the fullness and the richness of relationship that god had in mind when he made you and me and it's for that reason that we need some wisdom for, from heaven as to how to properly apologize. We talked about forgiveness, but apologies are a whole different thing, right? And so we need some wisdom from heaven this morning. I almost called this message Apologies for Dummies, but I didn't want to insult anybody. I tweaked the title, How to Apologize, but in my mind, you know. How to Apologize. We're going to look at a passage description in Psalm 51. Won't you meet me in Psalm 51 this morning? There excuse me, our Bibles on the edges of your rows if you don't already have a Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at home that you can understand, feel free to take that Bible home with you as a gift from us to you. Please don't get in the habit of taking our Bibles home. Uh, If you need them, go ahead and take them. If you've got seven or eight at home, bring at least half of them back for somebody else. Psalm 51, we're going to start at verse 1. While you find that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word, truth, Thank you, Lord, for the privilege, the opportunity I get to stand before your people and bring your word. Father, it's no small matter to, uh, to steward your word, and I thank you for this opportunity. Lord, give me the strength and courage. Give me the fear of you to do this well. Uh, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears so that we might receive and respond to the word that you want to share today. Father, would you move anything uh, out of us that would bristle at the truth or would try to shift anything, uh, uh, the focus to anything other than what you want to do in our own hearts, Father? Would you put power on these words that you've given me to speak? Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Psalm 51, some of you recognize this chapter. It's a Psalm of David. And it is a a really important chapter because it is David sort of repenting to God for uh, basically his heinous misdeed, right? Some of you know uh, that David is said to be uh, one of Israel's great kings. He was said to be a man after God's own heart, which like that's high praise, right? But David found himself in a few messes. And what you need to know is that this psalm was written by King David at a point in his, a real low point in his life. He sinned against God in a major way. And I think to really understand this psalm and appreciate the context, I just want to briefly tell you the, the details that led up to this psalm. Uh, one day, uh, King David was up on his rooftop. He should have been on the battlefield with his men, but he was up on the rooftop. And he looked out and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. 
The scripture says she was beautiful. He asked his servant, who is that fine woman? They said, that's Bathsheba. That is the, the wife of, of one of your servants, uh, one of your uh, mighty men, Uriah. Uh, despite this information that he received, he sent for Bathsheba, slept with her, got her pregnant. This is like scandal. This is like reality TV, right? Got her pregnant and called her husband off of the battlefield so that he can sort of trick him into going to sleep with his wife so that he just covered up, just like it never happened, right? What he didn't count on was Uriah being a righteous man, and Uriah said, I'm not going home to sleep with my wife by my fellow comrades or risking their life on the battlefield. I'm going to sleep out here, and I'm not going to enjoy the company of my wife. Well, this, this really upset David's plan, so he had his military leader, Joab, put Uriah on the front lines of battle. And not just put him on the front line of battle, but he gave the other instruction to withdraw the troops that would be protecting him so Uriah's life was taken uh, in battle. After a period of mourning, Bathsheba became David's wife, and so he pressed on as if nothing ever happened. Well, the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, man, you are in trouble. I got, a little, I got news for you. The Lord has seen what you've done. He's not pleased with what you've done, and trouble is coming to your house. God forgives you, David, but you're going to pay for this. And one of the main ways that David would pay for this is that the son, which is the fruit of this misdeed, would not survive. The son would die, and he did die. And so this passage that we'll read today was written in light of that particular chain of events. Verse 1 reads this way, Have mercy on me, God, this is David, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize, this is important, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Verse 7, purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Verse 16, you do not desire sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is this, it is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. I love this particular text because David offers us. Maybe he didn't know he was doing this. He had no idea perhaps that his words would be recorded and read by millions and millions of people. But what he offers us, offers us is a master class on repentance. A master class on repentance. And while David's words, his repentance is directed toward heaven, I think we get a really good example, a template, if you will, of what it looks like to really repent. 
what it looks like to really apologize. Many of us are well-versed in kind of apologizing, kind of showing sorrow, kind of being kind of sad that we got caught. But this is it's expert wisdom for those who lack it on how to appropriately repent. And I think that we can look at David's repentance toward God and draw some things out that might help us in a more excellent way repent and apologize well when we're relating to one another. So I see five basic things that you need to apologize well, things that I see in this text. And I'll start with the first one. The first thing is that you must recognize your sinfulness. Recognize your sinfulness. Let's not, let's not skip past this one. Let, let's start here. This is helpful, and not just helpful, but it's necessary to have a keen awareness of your own sinfulness. A keen awareness of your own sinfulness. Listen, nobody has to make you aware of the sinfulness of others. We're experts on that. I can spot your sin from a mile away. I might even not know exactly what you're into, but it's something my spidey senses just tell me when you're into something. Isn't it true? We just, we're just you can easily spot the sinfulness of others, but, but it does, however, take a certain degree of emotional, spiritual, relational maturity and wisdom to have a keen awareness of your own sinfulness. David says in verse 3, For I recognize my rebellion, it haunts me day and night. David says, I, I, listen, I'm, I'm well aware. Now, if you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, it seemed like, you know, the prophet Nathan had to come and make him aware to help him to recognize this is often the case with us. But in this particular moment, David recognizes his rebellion. He recognizes his deviation from the path that God would have him on. He knows he's messed up, which is the very first step. Now that speaks, that recognition of his rebellion speaks of his current, like his circumstance, this particular issue with Bathsheba and Uriah and even made Joab complicit in all of this mess. But he goes on in verse 5 to give us a broader, deeper picture of his sinfulness. He says, verse 5, for I was what? Born a sinner. And he goes a little bit deeper. He says, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, I was a sinner. Now, that's deep. David says, I came out of the box this way. And it wasn't just when I was born. The moment I was conceived, I was a sinful man. Now, this is a bold, awesome revelation. And some of you haven't received this revelation about yourself yet. You've received this revelation about your spouse and your kids, you're like, yep, your boss and your coworkers and subordinates and your, 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 your school's kindergarten teacher, like, you, you, you see full well that they were born sinners. Uh, but you haven't taken a look in the mirror yourself. And so you'd be surprised at how many people are totally surprised that anyone would find fault in them. I know not you, but maybe somebody sitting near you hadn't quite got that memo yet that you yourself are broken and sinful. And this takes the form of blaming teachers, blaming coaches, blaming everybody but you for the messes in your life. You've been fired from the last 10 jobs, and if you were to tell it, you've had 10 bad bosses. Your son's been kicked out of every school in the county 
But your assessment is all those teachers had it out for them. You've been married eight different times. And according to you, you've had, you know, eight bad spouses. None of it ever points to you. And so the, 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 the very beginning of learning how to be contrite and how to apologize and how to relate well to one another is to have a recognition and ownership of the fact that what David said, I was born a sinner. And we're enough of the mercy and grace of God that I need daily bread, right? I need new mercies every, forget every day, I need, I need them every minute. Were it not for those new mercies, I would be a mess. And so the mature person, the wise person knows that it's not just possible that I could hurt somebody. It's not just possible that I could lie or, or cheat or defame somebody else. Or slap. It's not just possible. It is likely on any given day that I can sin against God and sin against my brother and my sister. It is likely a few weeks ago, as I was talking about forgiveness, I charged you to budget for the humanity of others within the realm of forgiveness. And in doing so, you are offering, in a sense, pre-forgiveness because you just know in a healthy sense that somebody's going to let me down because that's what humans do. Well, today I'm telling you to budget for your own humanity. The budget for your own humanity. Listen, I am regularly disappointed by my own failures. Regularly but I am rarely surprised by them. I say it again. I am regularly disappointed in myself for the ways that I uh, dishonor God with my life, the ways I sin against my brother in all manners of ways, routinely disappointed, but at this stage of my life and this level of being in touch with myself and my history and my proneness to stray from the path, I am rarely surprised. Every now and then I surprise myself. I have that, you know. But rarely am I surprised. Why? Because I budgeted for my own humanity. I know it's altogether possible. It's especially likely. And so I'm not surprised as wise people aren't surprised when they mess up. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7 verse 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right but I can't. Any of us could slap our names on this. This, like, this could be the cry of our own hearts, right? Paul's not surprised when he sins. He's not surprised when he messes up. Why? Because he's recognized that David has that he is a sinful man, especially apart from God's intervention. The second pro tip for uh, being good at apologizing is to be contrite. To be contrite. Many of us fail and fall to here because you've mastered sort of the words of an apology, right? But it doesn't have the accompanying sort of godly sorrow. It doesn't uh, come along, with, bring, bring with those words an affect, a disposition of sorrow. And so if you ever related to kids, you know, when kids are young, they don't have empathy. They are totally oblivious, they're super selfish, and they whack their brother in the head with a two-by-four. There's blood gushing everywhere. The person's crying. You say, hey, get over here and say you're sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, if you were to read that through text, you'd be like, oh, they're sorry. But everything about them says, I'm only doing this so I don't get in trouble. 
I'm only saying this so that we can move past this. What are you crying for? Wash the blood up. Let's keep playing, right? There's no contrition. What is contrition? Feeling or expressing remorse or penitence. It shows that you have been affected by guilt. That what you did in some meaningful, measurable way bothers you. Many of us go about apologizing without contrition and therefore our apology is incomplete. But as I sort of jog through this text, I see all of these indications of godly sorrow. I see all of these indications that, that what David did and the consequences that have come to bear as a result of his actions is bothering him. There's contrition. Verse 3, I recognize my rebellion and it what? It haunts me day and night. I'm, I'm bothered by this. Verse 8, oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. He, he's, he's had to do without joy. This is disturbing his sleep. He says, this thing has broken me. Now, Lord, let me rejoice. Break me out of this thing. I'm in this, I'm in this thing. This is the season of reckoning with what I've done wrong. Give me my joy back. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Renew a loyal spirit. Don't banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. What is he experiencing? He's experiencing the season of grief, the season of guilt. Well, he can't feel God's presence. Not worshiping like he's supposed to be worshiping. He's in the season of contrition. He can't, he's just not normal. He's not himself. And he's he's begging God to lift this heaviness. And, and, And let me just tell you, in case you didn't know, like it should bother you when you hurt somebody. You should lose sleep over it. It should upset your normal deal when like you're in the throes of dealing with what you've done to somebody else, particularly when the weight of the consequences are visited upon you. It should bother you. It's bothering David. Restore the joy of my salvation. Make me willing to obey you. You don't desire a sacrifice, verse 16, or I would offer one. The sacrifice you desire is what? A broken spirit. David says, Lord, I'm in a sober place right now. Well, I am reckoning with what I've done to you and what I've done to the other person. I realize, Lord, that I can't just go prancing to the altar with some, you know, nice bull or some goat or something. What you want from me, what you want from me is a broken spirit. You want to know that this bothers me. Again, we're reaching back three weeks to Romans 12 where we're being transformed to look more like Jesus. This is like, this is maturity. Like, you, you, just like the kid doesn't show uh, empathy and doesn't show his affect, the accompanying affect with his apology. Like, this is something like you work towards. This is Christ being formed in you. This is where you get. A broken spirit. It matters whether or not it bothers you that you have wronged someone. And I believe that if you have followed step one, right, which is in recognizing your rebellion, uh, understanding the depth to which our sin, like, breaks God's heart, and therefore how the depth of our sin really infringes upon the relationships that God has put around us, then you will be moved to contrition. You will be moved to godly sorrow. How many of us haven't mastered this whole contrition thing? And this really has to be a work of the Spirit because, like, you know, you can sort of manufacture the contrition, right? But, but it has to originate at a deep place of sorrow in your heart. 
This is why it's a work of the Holy Spirit. This is why it's like something we grow into as we recognize the weight of our sin and what this means to others and what it means to God. And that we're supposed to show accompanying contrition with our apologies. The third thing I see is that we have a charge to be on record with our apologies. To be on record with our apologies. And I'm going to work real hard to take some of the sting out of this point because we're right now in the realm of one of my biggest pet peeves. And I'll try to contain myself as we talk about this. I think the only thing that's worse than no apology is a vague one. And we all have people in our life who don't quite know how to be on record with their apologies. And they say things like, sorry you're mad. (laughs) They say things like, sorry you took that the wrong way. And politicians all the time, when they step in on Twitter or something, hey, if I, my words offended anybody, that wasn't my intention. Who cares about your intentions when you've hurt somebody? The only thing worse than a vague apology is a nonverbal apology. And we all have people in our life who rather than saying I'm sorry, owning what they've done, they'll go get you a coffee from Starbucks. Oh, they'll come and play around with you, right? Oh, they'll do any, everything to try to communicate in an indirect way. I suppose that's better than nothing, but don't do us all a favor by trying to have us figure out what your sorry looks like. Don't do us all a big favor by having us guess what it looks like when you're really sorry. Some of us have parents like this. Some of you cannot remember a time where your parents said, you know what, my bad, I messed up. I was wrong. Some of you have kids right now, and you better root this out of their little sinful behinds where they have to say, make them say about their apology. They, they, they won't own it. They'll blame their excuse. They'll justify. Some of you have bosses who never, ever, ever directly apologizes, and, it, and it's maddening. And we can have people in our life that do that to us, and it's maddening. And you know what we'll do? We'll do the same thing to our kids. We do the same thing with our spouse. We do the same things with the people who we manage. It's just silliness. Don't complain with me. Say, I'm sorry. Don't say, hey, are we cool, bro? No, we're not cool. You haven't said the magic words yet. (laughs) If this is you, stop it. If this is you, grow up. I'm going to let that sit for a while because it's an immature thing to do. I know you're 50. I know you're 60. It's, a seven. it's immature. Cut it out because your offense wasn't vague. Your offense was, 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 was on the record. We, like, we know what you did. And so the wisdom from heaven today would be grow up and get on the record. I don't care who you are. If you're a parent, if you're a spouse, if you're a friend, if you're a coworker, if you're a boss, if you're a child, if you're a sibling, if you're the seventh cousin, thrice removed, who do you think you are that you don't have to apologize when you mess up? David says this in verse 4. Against you and you alone have I sinned. 
anybody unclear about who the offender is and who the offended is? Is there there anything unclear about who the players are in this story? Against you and you alone, which is interesting because, like, I can think of Bathsheba was offended. You know, Uriah lost his life. Joab, the military leader, was, was, was brought into this mess. There's plenty of people he owes apologies to, but David understands that as it relates to his relationship with God, his obligation as Israel's king, man after God's own heart, that he sinned against God, and he needed to sort of be on record with that. Against you and you alone, I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. I say, hey, listen, whatever you've done to me, whatever you will do, however this thing plays out, because it's not over, a whole lot of drama is the result in David's life, if you read his story, is a result of this particular sin. And what David says, in short, is whatever I got coming, whatever you do to me, Lord, I got it coming. I I messed up. I sinned against you. Now, let me put it to you straight. I I hate apologizing. Anybody like it? Anybody like it? I especially hate apologizing to my kids. There's something about this child-parent dynamic that it just bothers me to have to apologize to my kids. And I got four of them, so I have to do this regularly. I say something like, Joe, get in here, man. Get these Beyblades off the floor. I'm tired of stepping on these things. Say, Dad, that, that's not mine. Those are Eli's. <sighs> I'm sorry, son. I, should, <laughs> I shouldn't have yelled at you. You're right. I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm happy to do this regularly. And not to throw my father under the bus, I had a father who was an indirect apologizer, right? He, he didn't apologize uh, uh, verbally often. We had to figure out his, you know, he'd come mess with you. He'd come, you know, give you some money or he'd come. But he, and so I had this conviction that when I'm wrong and when I wrong them, when I yell at them or if I punish them, if I do something and I'm wrong, I, I got to say it quick just because this is how, this is how it's, it's, it's instinct now, right? But I absolutely hate it. And they got this little look on their face as I'm apologizing. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely hate it. So I don't want to paint this picture of it's just easy. It's not easy. There's also this woman that lives in my house. (laughs) And the only thing I hate more than apologizing to my kids, apologizing to my wife. And some of you brothers know what I'm talking about because they don't always make it easy, right? Ben, you know what I'm talking about. Ben said, leave me out of this. I hate apologizing to my wife. And part of the reason is I don't get a lot of practice because I really just... I don't do that much. <laughs> I'm just not wrong that often. So I don't have a whole lot of... Ramon, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I have plenty of opportunities. But it just, it just doesn't feel good. You, you've stormed out of the room. And once you storm out, if you've got to go back in there, it's... I said, you know what? I, that was disrespectful. That was rude. I'm wrong. I checked the email. You were right. You did send me that. That was on the... I just, I just hate it, right? So I'm not talking about when, as Christ is formed within you, you'll learn to love apologizing. In fact, you'll, you'll hurt people just so you can... <laughs> so you can apologize. It's a treat, you know? It's, it's, not, it's, it's not that at all. It's not that at all. Um, But it's just that one of the marks of maturity is that you learn to do the hard things. 
one of the marks of relational maturity and relational wisdom is that you become harder on yourself and easier on others. I'll say that again. One of the marks that you're growing in, in maturity, that Christ is being formed in you, is that you'll find that you take it easier on people and that you're harder in a healthy sense on yourself. And immature is harder on everybody else but themselves. They'll nail you to the wall for something they do all the time. And when you call them out on it, they'll tell you about their intentions. They'll tell you about their motives. They'll tell you about how their grandmama said something. It's never them. It's like, hey, listen, I'm a nice person. But they will nail you to the wall. And as Christ is formed within you, you begin to do the hard things. And one of the really hard things is I'm going to be hard on myself. I'm going to examine myself first. Because when you apologize indirectly, you rob that person of receiving justice You've not had to go on record and own yourself, so you've taken it easier on you. You not only rob them of justice, but now they have to figure out through your coding system what sorry looks like for you. Now think of the hundreds of people you have in your life. Imagine if you had to have figure out for each person what sorry looked like. I didn't think about it that way, did you? And my job as a follower of Jesus, as a person who sows honor and preserves Dignity, your dignity at the cost of mine sometimes is to make life easier for you. Because if we're living this out in community, that will be your aim as well. You see what I'm saying? And so as I grow into this, I don't rest on my motives or intentions. I don't blame, excuse, or justify. I simply ask myself, did I do you harm? We can get to the motives later. We can get to the intention. Did I, did I sin against you? Did I slander you? Did I lie to you? Did I, did I break our marriage vows? Did I accuse you of something? Did I sin against you? If the answer is yes, then I owe you a verbal, on-record apology with the appropriate measure of accompanying contrition. That's what I owe you. Nothing less. We own our mess. We go on record after we recognize our sinfulness and we show contrition. Fourth thing in this process is that we are charged with being specific. We are charged with being specific about what we've done. Right? And this is part of being on record, but in my opinion, it's another realm. Like I, I, when I say, hey, I'm sorry that you're upset. I'm sorry that you're hurt. I'm sorry that I made you mad. That doesn't really help them know that I know what I did. Because as a general rule, I don't apologize for things that I don't, when I don't think I'm wrong. And that might seem like me being stubborn. That might seem like me being, you know, insensitive. And I've had people tell me in my whole life, listen, just say you're sorry and just sort of get past it. And I say no to that. Because once I say sorry, that thing becomes off limits. And I just, I don't think that's wrong. Right? Tons of times my wife is mad at me. Well, I can, just, I can end the thing. I, can, I know how to end it. I mean, I'm sorry. For, but, I, you know, this is a longer conversation because I don't believe that I did anything wrong. Let's talk about this, right? So as a general rule, I don't apologize. But when I have done something wrong and I recognize it, I have to call that thing out. 
David says in verse 14, forgive me for shedding blood. This is what he did, among other things. And if he has a conversation with Bathsheba, he'll have a different set of things to name. If he ever gets to glory and talk to Uriah, he'll say, hey, listen, I'm sorry for this. Hey, Joab, I brought you into this. He's probably got a long line of people to apologize for. In all those conversations, he will need to be specific. Here's, the, here's one of the byproducts of being specific. Sometimes I've apologized for something, and my wife says something like, that's not even what I'm mad about. And now that I think about it, yeah, that, I'll add that to the list. But here's what's really the issue. You see what I'm saying? But, but being specific, it tunes my heart. Because then, you know, the more vague my apology is, the easier it is on me. But you ever had to sit in your mess? And naming it, especially when you're sitting in front of the person that you've hurt, is, is redeeming for them, but it, it's humiliating for us, which is why we try to avoid it, which is why we try to zip past it. But it also opens up an opportunity for dialogue and real healing for the person. And listen, if you're trying to avoid the pain of this, there, there's no version of apologizing. There's no version of repentance that doesn't come along with just some some pain and some uncomfort, you know, some uh, uh, lack of comfort. There's no version of this. In fact, one of the sure signs that you're doing it right is that it's awkward for you, that it's, that it's troublesome for you. That's part of what it means to be contrite and to deal with it. Mature people do that. David says, forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. I can't tell you how many times I have to mediate conflict between spouses between kids, between friends. Whereas the mediator, I have to say, no, 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 you're moving too fast. What did you do again? Or I said, no, you didn't say it. Because I, I just got here. We've been sitting here an hour, and I don't know what you did. At least I haven't heard you say, what, what are you going to do? Finally, after an hour and a half, they, they mumble out what they did, and, and, and usually things begin to break at that point. Why? There's something about Naming it and being specific that is absolutely necessary as we work out godly sorrow and apologizing. And this fifth thing, it's not particularly found in the text, and I'll call it a bonus sort of tip uh, for apologizing. It is, you know, make it right if you can. Right? Make, make it right if you can. I guess you can kind of see it in the text because David talks about the ways he's going to respond to this. And when his joy gets back, he's going to teach God's righteousness to the rebels. And he's going to offer sacrifice. In some indirect ways, he's talking to God about how he's planning to get back on the right track. But, but, but I imagine that if he were to talk with Bathsheba and talk with the other people that he's wronged along the way, there would be some, some measurable ways that if he can make right what he's done wrong, he'd do this. And I think many of us uh, might, might engage in all of the steps that I talked about. But let me tell you something. If you stole $5 from me, I don't care if you came in sackcloth and ashes, weeping and gnashing your teeth and telling me how sorry you are, with tears in your eyes, I'm going to need my $5. We can do it in installments. You can give me a nickel a day, but I'm going to need my $5 back. 
Because that's something you can make right. Now, I joke about the $5, but some of you have wronged people in ways that you can make right. And in many ways, our apologies fall to the ground in the same way that they fall to the ground with the Lord, where you say, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me uh, for, for sleeping with my boyfriend, but you've booked another trip over there tomorrow night. All to say, there's something you can do about that transgression, but many of us left that undone. And so the charge to you, particularly in your interpersonal relationships, and some of you, I don't even have to prompt you this, you're already thinking about things, open accounts that you have with people. Ways that you've wronged, maybe the people who are closest to you, maybe your spouse, or, or maybe your children, or maybe your friends, or maybe your grandparents, or your, maybe your boss, or the co-workers, or people you manage, you say, man, man I, 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 apology just wasn't quite enough. Even though I really felt sorry, what might God be calling me to do uh, to, to make this right? For some of you, it's simple things, like paying people money, you owe them. You owe people money, go pay it back. You've told lies on people, go tell the truth. But some of it's more complicated. And some of you are here today and you look back on your life with your children and you say, man, I really, I've really screwed up my kids. I was a horrible father. I was totally distant. I, 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 I see traces, the, the fruit of my, my selfishness. I see it all. And for you, it's not like paying back $5 or $500. For you, it's like a deep work of repentance that you maybe salvaged the few years that you have left, that you can figure out how you can make your apology complete by doing what you can on this side of the offense to make it right. Am I being clear what I'm saying here? And so as I put this all together... We see that it starts with recognizing our sinfulness. Listen, if there were people among us that were perfect, then I can see how we would feel kind of shy about being sinful. But listen, all of humanity is, is, is flawed and sinful. We all have work to do on this, right? If, hey, somebody say, hey, man, I'm, I'm kind of messed up. Pastor. Say, hey, you're in good company. This is a really good church to come to if you're messed up, messed up because we're all messed up in here. And some of you, that's news to you, but you're messed up. You say, you don't even know me. I know humans, we're messed up, right? And so real rep- we can't lean into real repentance if we don't recognize and budget for our own humanity. You can't apologize, right, if we don't have due contrition, that awareness, that outworking of appropriate guilt. We won't apologize well if we're not on the record, if we don't, aren't specific, and if we, don't, if we can make right the things that we've done wrong. This won't happen. And so if you're here today and you're feeling condemned, you're feeling beat up, listen, that's not from the Lord. There's no condemnation, as we say. The scripture says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, God's goal is to move us toward what? Repentance, reconciliation, right relationship with him and others. And oftentimes, in order to do that, he's got to get in our face about something. He's got to draw our attention to the thing that we would gladly ignore. That's my, that's my job, right? And so you shouldn't be feeling, you know, condemnation. You should be feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is usually very specific, which usually pinpoints an area of your life that you need to shore up. That's like, like, that's like a gift from God. You should thank God for that. Even though it doesn't feel, you should thank him for that. 
And you should accompany that with a willingness to respond in whatever way the Lord might express to you is appropriate. At least you can come up as we let me close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Father, for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Father, you, 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 you label us in your word sheep, right? And that's a really kind way of saying we're just kind of dumb about some things. We need your help and we need your guidance. We need your truth. We need your wisdom. And so, Father, for those of us who are not great at this, showing contrition and apologizing, Father, would you just help us today? Would you humble us by your spirit? And Father, would you give us the grace today to apologize, to humble ourselves? Would you give us the grace where it's appropriate, where it's fitting, to go and make right those things that we've done wrong? Father, would you go before us, even this week, as we pledge to do what you called us to do, to go before us this week and make the crooked places straight? Prepare the people's hearts for these conversations. Prepare uh, the people we have to make things right with. Prepare their hearts for this interaction, Father. And God, give us the victory in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray.